Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Edward Marshall, and I'd like to welcome all of you to our latest discussion in our family office series here at Boston Private. Today's conversation focuses on wealth planning and specifically an interesting opportunity that families can leverage during this economic environment. My colleague Jason King will share his insights on how families are achieving you know, these wealth transfer goals today, specifically in a period of expiring federal transfer tax exemptions, declining asset valuations, and historic low intrafamily lending rates. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Jason's a, certainly a subject matter expert in the family office space, and he runs our Center for Wealth Planning at Boston Private. I've also had the pleasure of working with him now at two different firms. Uh, Jason, to kick us off, uh, you know, tell us about your background. Sure, Eddie. Thank you very much for, for having me. So my career started after uh, law school and, and getting my Master's of Law in Taxation. I spent the first 15 years uh, of my career in private practice representing wealthy families, family offices, and entrepreneurs in wealth transfer planning, uh, family governance, uh, and the associated um, legal issues that those, uh, those types of families uh, faced. I left um, private practice to go to work for a family, uh, both uh, helping them build out their single family office and uh, sitting in their RIA uh, I was an institutional money manager that had a little sidecar RIA uh, where I uh, helped build out their wealth strategy practice group. Um, I subsequent to, subsequently to working with the family, uh, joined Credit Suisse and built out, helped build out their uh, wealth planning practice. That's where the two of us had the, the good fortune to meet uh, and have been basically in private banking, uh, building out multifamily office and family office services and wealth strategies practice group uh, over the course of the last uh, decade or so. Great. Well, Jason, you've been in the planning business for nearly three decades, and you've worked with a lot of different business owners, financial sponsor principals, and family offices of all different stripes. Now, what's different about the wealth situation uh, we're talking about today and, and compared it to other previous economic downturns? Three kind of convergences of circumstances that make it um, rather make make it a rather unique opportunity uh, for wealthy families to leverage um, specific strategies to um, to move assets off of their balance sheets uh, in a wealth transfer uh, planning uh, methodology. I always talk about preserving, protecting, and, and passing wealth. And these combination of three circumstances uh, really are what's driving this. Uh, all three of them alone would likely be uh, motivations to con consider uh, planning strategies, but when you combine them, I, I think they have a fairly unique uh, set of circumstances. The first of which is that we've, um, we're at historic highs for the amount that each individual can uh, transfer estate and gift tax-free. Uh, that amount uh, with the 2017 Tax Act was doubled uh, from $5 million to $10 million. It's indexed for inflation uh, since uh, 2010. They reverted back to 2010 to, uh, to index it for inflation, and it now sits at $11.58 million. It will continue to rise roughly $100,000 a year until 2025. At the end of 2025, uh, it will 
revert back to half of that amount. So that's the first of the three uh, issues. The second of the three issues is that um, we have um, a reduction in valuations both in, uh, in the uh, public marketplaces, which will also flow over into uh, private marketplaces. And when valuations of uh, assets of businesses uh, are low, uh, that is an opportune time to consider wealth transfer planning strategies. And then the third piece uh, is that um, we have historic low, uh, what I refer to as intra-family lending rates. And, and for uh, family offices, uh, this creates or, or uh, adds another opportunity uh, to shift wealth uh, through um, Transact interfamily transactions, selling assets uh, to second, third generation family members, or lending money uh, to second and third generation family members uh, so that they can then go out and acquire assets um, uh, that the family might otherwise have acquired at the senior generation level. So bringing those three together is really uh, what's creating this unique uh, set of circumstances. Uh, well, that's interesting, Jason. I think one of the pieces you mentioned is that you know the the exemption amount is uh, likely to head down in, in five years from now. You know, we talked about why it's going down. Could it be potentially be reduced before 2026? Yeah, and I just um, <laughs> flipped up a slide uh, that kind of tracks the exemption amount. Uh, as it's increased over the last uh, decade and, and as it's going to increase uh, over the next five years. The 2000 ta 2017 tax leg legislation doubled that exemption amount as of expiration, uh, but that piece of the legislation is set to expire at the end of 2025. Uh, so what that means is in roughly 2025, the indexed amount will be, let's call it somewhere around $12 million per person. Uh, and then on, uh, on January 1, 2026, that amount will, uh, will drop down to 50% or $6 million. Um, <clears throat> so families that can take advantage over the next five years uh, of this increased exemption amount uh, prior to it being reduced in 2026 will, in essence, gain uh, the federal transfer tax system. Uh, at the end of 2019, the Treasury issued uh, a ruling that said there will be no clawback provisions so that if you made a $12 million gift uh, in 2025, uh, they could not claw back or tax you on $6 million of that uh, when the exemption amount decreased the following year. Now, that being said, that's where the tax legislation sits now. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, a change uh, in uh, the president's office, uh, that we have some other tax legislation, it does not mean that we could not have uh, modifications to that legislation prior to uh, 2026. What I tell everybody I talk to is there's a lot of things I can't guarantee, but what I ultimately will guarantee is that at some point in the future, we are going to have a Democrat uh, as the President of the United States. 
And when that happens, um, I can almost assure you that uh, transfer tax um, issues are going to be a hot button. They affect very few people. Uh, you can swell a lot of, uh, of liberal support around uh, increasing uh, federal transfer taxes. I would suspect uh, that if we do have a Democrat uh, in office, that legislation would be uh, potentially pushed through uh, that would lower that and possibly quicker than 2026 and possibly lower uh, than, um, than $6 million in 2026. Uh, so I, I talk about the, the using this exemption now while it exists uh, before you get whips off at some point in time in the future. That's great. Uh, and, and Ed, I, maybe, I yeah. oh, sorry, flipped, go ahead. I said I flipped to uh, the slide one, and, and it it really lays out that um, uh, that movement over the course of the last 15 years. Another thing that I'll suggest is that the tax rate now is on on federal, state, and gift taxes is the lowest that it's been since I've practiced in 30 years. So absent. Um, one year when you could technically elect to have no uh, estate tax, but uh, it is the lowest rate uh, of the actual tax that we've had at 40%. Um, when I started practicing, and for many years, it was at 55%. One of the things that I also think might happen is a reversion back to um, an high, a higher rate in the future. All, right. all, all interesting trends uh, there, Jason. Yeah, yeah here. I, uh, no, I was just I was going to just um, finally mention as we looked at this slide um, that oftentimes um, when we start talking to families uh, about transferring uh, wealth, there's always this um, this desire to um, to effectuate wealth transfer planning strategies. Uh, but always have contingency plans in the event they would ever need some type of access uh, uh, to the assets that they in, uh, they gave away or, or uh, put in uh, specific strategies. And we'll talk a little bit about that here uh, at the bottom of this uh, this page. And, and what we uh, oftentimes see families do uh, to utilize these increased exemptions again, because if they're going to uh, redu be reduced in 2026, you want to use uh, the amounts during uh, the period that they're at the higher levels, uh, they'll transfer them to what uh, is commonly referred to access trusts. Uh, these are types of trusts that uh, you can move assets to uh, and um, either at the, the senior generational level uh, or through a spousal uh, scenario maintain some access, uh, some control, and some ability to modify the structure. So I liken it to uh, nobody wants to give, you know, $12 million to, uh, to their children uh, for a couple of reasons. They want to use trusts uh, to protect assets uh, from, from being misused. Uh, they always uh, want, to, um, want to create structures that, God forbid, if there was a a need that they'd be able to access them. Um, those structures um, are commonly created uh, and are very efficient at providing uh, the necessary comforts of knowing that if there is 
a scenario where you might need access uh, to the asset base that they can be uh, that access can be um, uh, achieved that you can uh, retain some control uh, over the asset base at the senior generational level when you're doing planning and that control specifically um, focuses on uh, buying and selling and ownership uh, decisions and you can incorporate into uh, into strategies the ability to modify um, these structures um, at points in time in the future. So utilizing this exemption amount uh, and implementing what I've referred to here as access trust uh, can be uh, can create uh, scenarios where uh, we can still have some access, some control, and some flexibility over the asset base, even though we've removed it from um, our taxable estate. So, Jason, let's move into the mechanics a little bit. How do you give something away and still have access through it and through this access trust that you mentioned? Well, and I would I'll start with almost every single person who has created a testamentary estate plan, and a testamentary estate plan is an estate plan that. Um, that is created when you pass. It's wills and trusts, revocable trusts um, are the common theme for wealthy families. They have that, that very structure uh, embedded in those, uh, those documents. Uh, what we do with families that want access during lifetime is we bring those to life um, now as opposed to waiting until you're, you pass. And, and an example um, would be that a husband uh, creates a trust, uh, designates his wife as a discretionary beneficiary of that trust along with children, transfers $12 million or $11.58 million into that trust, um, and uh, a couple things happen when that's done. Uh, the first is that uh, he's, the husband has used his federal estate tax exemption uh, and moved the asset off of his or her, his balance sheet. Um, the spouse, wife in this instance, uh, may receive um, discretionary distributions of both income and principal from that trust. She may even be given a power to withdraw uh, up to 5% of that trust uh, a year. Uh, and those um, access points do not uh, elevate uh, to the level that the assets inside of that trust will be included in the uh, wife's estate. So you've moved the, balance, the assets off the balance sheet of the husband. The wife remains a beneficiary of the trust, uh, but the assets aren't includable in her estate when she uh, passes. Very similar to what's commonly referred to as a family trust in a uh, revocable or testamentary trust that uh, springs into existence when uh, a husband or a wife passes away. Uh, so that's kind of the key uh, basis for um, having access. Now, I will say uh, that w when we work with families, um, there is often we oftentimes have to have to balance between needs uh, and wants. Most every family we work with has uh, a uh, desire, a want to have access uh, to um, to their wealth, even if they were to transfer it into an access trust. They likely won't needed, but they want to know psychologically that if there is an emergency, that they'll have 
uh, the ability to uh, get access to um, to the funds. And uh, in an access trust, the uh, wife in this case would be able to get access to those funds. The second part of that is need. If the family truly needs the asset to survive on, to maintain standards of living, um, then the access trust might not be the right structure, uh, but there are other structures that we would then uh, look at. Uh, so we oftentimes are balancing the psychologies between uh, need and wants. Uh, when we create these trusts, we typically do them with assets. Uh, we transfer into these trust assets that uh, have great growth potential uh, and that, uh, generally speaking, don't spin off a lot of income. It's a way to leverage the structure. Um, so uh, on top of that, uh, we routinely layer uh, the psychological means between um, wanting something and needing something. Uh, but that's generally what uh, the structure looks like, uh, or one of the structures looks like. So, Jason, you touched on this uh, earlier uh, briefly on sort of the asset protection aspect of these. How effective are these access trusts uh, for protecting folks from creditors? When drafted, um, when drafted correctly and intentionally, they then become not only a, a wealth transfer planning uh, tool, but they become one of the most efficient asset protection tools that we have uh, uh, in our arsenal. Um, the assets once transferred, absent a fraudulent conveyance, uh, the, the creditors of the transfer, in this case the husband, cannot get at them. The creditors of the spouse uh, cannot get at them as long as the trusts are drafted in a, a correct manner. Um, and then as the wealth moves to second and third generations, we tend to keep that wealth intact inside the, uh, a trust structure, uh, and they become uh, incredibly uh, useful asset protection tools for second and third generation family members uh, in the same way they were for mom and dad. Um, and then you layer on top of it uh, that um, divorcing spouses in most instances uh, cannot gain access to uh, the income or the assets inside these uh, trusts uh, as we move into second and third, third generation. So they, um, I, we used to get a lot of questions back in the early uh, 2010s about, well, what happens if, um, if the estate tax uh, is done away with? And my response was always, I, I would continue to utilize these structures because of the um, significant asset protection benefit that they provide uh, for both the current uh, generation of beneficiaries and for subsequent generations of uh, beneficiaries. Uh, Jason, what about the income tax uh, implications and consequences of these kinds of trusts? Certainly. So um, they, and, and I switched here to, to uh, slide four that kind of just walks through the mechanics. I'm not going to speak directly to every bullet point, but uh, the income tax consequences, um, I tell families um, we structure these trusts to be income tax neutral to the family unit. So what does that mean? It means that the family as a whole, these structures neither increase nor decrease income taxes. 
they are frequently structured in a manner so that the senior generation, the generation with the most amount of wealth, still bears the income tax burden of what happens inside the trust. And why is that important? It's another um, wealth transfer strategy. If mom and dad transfer $10 million into the, the trust, and I'll just round here, and it produces uh, $300,000 of income uh, a year, and mom and dad have to pay the income taxes on that, let's say that that's roughly $100,000. Um, each time mom and dad pay that income tax, the trust has benefited. It's continuing to grow um, to the extent it doesn't pay its own income tax liability. And mom and dad have, in essence, a, um, a debit to their, to their assets. Um, so what's happened is that we create these trusts and we take, care, uh, take advantage of the nuance between estate uh, laws and income tax laws, and that nuance allows dad, mom and dad to pay the income taxes and the trust to not pay the income tax neutral in that as a family unit, we've neither increased or decreased the taxes, but we've invested, in essence shifted wealth to the trust and leveraged uh, the estate planning benefits. And the IRS has said that that shift is not an additional gift. Um, so it becomes another very beneficial um, uh, piece of these types of structures is that the income tax Payment by uh, mom and dad is not considered an additional gift to the trust. It's another way to leverage the growth of the trust that's not going to be subject to estate taxes. Um, now, a lot of people say, what if there's a huge transaction and mom and dad can't afford to pay uh, the income taxes? Well, we can draft the trust that, provide, that, that it provides um, for payment of income tax, taxes in certain circumstances. Uh, so uh, we can, again, have another safety net uh, in, in these types of structures if that is a concern. So, uh, Jason, perhaps we can talk about the other piece that you mentioned in terms of, you know, depressed assets and, and assets that may not be uh, as valued as they were uh, a year ago. How can families, uh, you, know, you know, leverage and how are families leveraging those asset uh, prices now given the, uh, you know, and leveraging them for the federal trust transfer tax exemptions? So this is a pretty straightforward uh, concept, um, and, and it starts with how we engage with most families. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, eight out of ten families come to us um, not you know three years before they sell their business and want to do wealth transfer planning. They come to us uh, three weeks before the transaction is closing, uh, and they say, what can we do from a wealth transfer uh, perspective? We're selling the business for you know, $100 million, $50 million, $200 million. Oftentimes, um, we're too far down uh, the path uh, to do any significant planning uh, at that point. Uh, so the moral of the story is to the extent you have assets uh, that you think are going to increase in value. To the extent you have uh, the ability to move uh, your exemption amount off your balance sheet in a structure like an access trust, it's always benef more beneficial to do it before that asset value uh, increases. So uh, when markets decline, that gives us 
uh, a leveraging effect of, of what we can put inside of these trusts. So uh, the chart that we had up, it's since come back a little, but um, we had um, a 25% drop in uh, the S&P 500 uh, back in March. Uh, if you uh, transfer assets low at low values and they grow, you're leveraging that which you can move off of your balance sheet into uh, these, these access trusts. In 2008-2009, as we uh, went through um, the uh, recession that reduced significantly the values of assets, we saw, um, we saw private company stock uh, and we saw um, uh, even uh, the public company stocks significantly reduce. And, and very shortly after the market declined, um, public uh, I'm sorry, private company stocks, uh, and the valuations that you saw there declined. Now, three, four, five years later, uh, those asset values had returned. It is an opportunistic time uh, to consider wealth transfer planning because we are going to have some pressures on valuation, whether they're public marketplace um, uh, assets that you're looking to move, or private market uh, place assets. Uh, when there is that pressure uh, on valuations, it gives us a unique opportunity to move uh, those assets off our balance sheet. Keeping in mind that these, uh, the families we talk to and the, these types of structures uh, aren't meant to be one or two or three or five year uh, strategies. These are multi-generational strategies uh, of which we have um, a great deal of time uh, for assets to mature and continue uh, to grow. So transferring at low values, uh, particularly um, interesting closely held businesses that can be devalued even more uh, for lack of marketability and minority stakes uh, has a significant benefit in leveraging uh, these exemption amounts. So, uh, Jason, you mentioned closely held businesses, and you, you touched on marketable securities. What about real estate and, and other types of assets? Uh, fantastic assets to utilize this, uh, these structures for, particularly because most um, real estate is held in, uh, in entity formation, LLC, or, or partnership formation uh, routinely for, uh, for uh, a great deal of the uh, of the real estate investors we work with, you can significantly, you know, real estate values are going to go down. Um, and the valuation methodologies used uh, for estate and gift tax uh, purposes is going to allow us to value those assets at a lower price than even what their value was two months ago. That being said, you can also um, work into uh, those types of, of structures, these minority and marketability discounts, because they are routinely held uh, in LLCs and partnership entities. Uh, and when you routinely engage in this type of uh, wealth transfer planning, you're giving away minority non-voting stakes uh, in the uh, underlying entity. So um, th those are opportune assets uh, to uh, consider carving off pieces of the ownership structure to these types of trust and these types of, types of vehicles. What about uh, some of the risks associated with that? I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, with gifting these types of assets and, you know, discounts for the lack of marketability or minority interests, you know, what, what, what are potential pitfalls in, in a strategy like this? 
Yeah, yeah certainly, um, you certainly need to follow the formalities of the structures. Uh, you, need, um, you need guidance from and the uh, assistance of uh, experienced professionals, attorneys, and accountants who have engaged in this type of practice. Whenever you are valuing something from an internal, uh, from an estate and gift tax perspective, um, you need to recognize that the valuations you claim are going to be given a significant amount uh, of scrutiny. Um, estate taxes are reviewed by, estate tax returns are reviewed by hand as are gift tax returns. Um, and you can expect uh, that they, that valuations will be scrutinized. So you need to have a professional appraiser, whether you're giving away uh, a non-marketable interest in a real estate LLC, or you're giving away a closely held business, or you're giving away uh, a pool of, of assets, uh, of marketable assets. That's the first um, issue uh, is that valuations um, are always going to be scrutinized. You need experienced professionals to help you. In creating the trusts, um, I, I go back to that need versus want. Um, if we're working with a family that needs to have access, um, then we will oftentimes look at alternative uh, structures. If we're working with uh, families that would, you know, that will feel better if they know that if uh, there's a worst case scenario that they can get access, uh, then um, the structure, the access trust can be a very viable uh, scenario. But you need to make sure that uh, uh, the, the implementation uh, and the um, structure is one uh, that is done by and with the guidance of uh, experienced professionals who have walked through this. There are some ancillary uh, issues uh, as you walk, uh, walk through you know, using access trust uh, where you're relying upon your spouse for access. Premature deaths uh, could certainly affect um, economically the surviving spouse. That's one issue. Second issue uh, is, is um, a divorce uh, could be uh, very, very um, difficult to manage through uh, if we use spousal access trust. When we sit with each and every family, we spend a great deal of time talking them through all of those issues and how to create structures that allows us to mitigate risk. And I think that's the real important issue. We can mitigate risk. We cannot eliminate that risk. So we have to um, live with a little bit of risk, but uh, the goal and the objective is to get uh, structures in place that, that our families that we're working with are extremely comfortable with how they uh, those structures um, work, how they function, how they are administered, uh, and uh, the, the amount of risk that um, has been mitigated uh, is in their comfort zone. Some folks uh, are much more comfortable with more risk uh, than others, and it's, it's a process of balancing uh, between those. So, uh, Jason, we sort of talked about the and, structure. And I, I know the, we're running... Yep. I think we're good. Yep. Uh, Go ahead. Ed. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> so we've talked about the structure. We've talked about asset valuation uh, changes. What about the intrafamily lending rate piece of this uh, this tool that you you've been talking about? Sure, sure. So. Um, there are, and, and I've got the, the chart of um, 
uh, what is referred to as midterm AFR, uh, which I call it the family lending rate. Uh, and it gives you uh, a look at the interest rates over the last 12 years for AFR. What is AFR? AFR is a um, is prescribed monthly by the Treasury Department, uh, and the one I've got up here is midterm AFR, which is um, uh, the rates of obligations and maturities of more than three and up to nine years. Uh, it's a measuring stick, uh, and what the Treasury does is it looks at um, it looks at the the um, average uh, rates for um, for uh, obligations, federal obligations with maturities of between three and nine years, and then it prescribes this uh, interest rate on a monthly basis. Uh, and really what it says is if, it's used for a number of things, but in this context, if families are going to lend money uh, amongst themselves, they have to at least charge uh, this rate uh, if the loan is in between three and nine years. And I, we routinely use the midterm uh, AFR rate for interfamily lending. There's a long-term AFR rate a little bit higher, and then there's a short-term AFR rate that's a little bit lower. Uh, but the point being is that many times families will want to do more than just give $12 million or $24 million, roughly $24 million, uh, husband and wife, they'll, they'll have an asset that's significantly more valuable than that. Uh, and they will want to sell that asset, maybe to the same access trust that they gave assets to. Um, or they'll, uh, they'll do what I, uh, I call intellectual opportunity shifting, uh, in that a, uh, a father might have an investment opportunity, uh, but because uh, he's facing uh, estate tax issues, decides to um, give that opportunity or transfer that opportunity to son, daughter, or trust for sons and daughters. Uh, and the way to do that is, one of the ways to do that is to lend uh, them uh, or trust for their benefit money to make that investment. So we have um, these um, structures that allow us to go beyond just gifting, to shift wealth um, to uh, a second and or third generation uh, by uh, either selling those assets or lending them assets, uh, lending them cash that they then can go out uh, and acquire, um, acquire assets. We are almost at the historic low interfamily lending rate. Uh, in 2012, for one month, uh, we dipped down to 84 basis points. Uh, we're at 99 basis points right now. So if you were to enter into an interfamily loan for nine years in April of 2020, you would have to charge at least 99 uh, basis points to uh, the borrower, your family member or trust that you created for your family members. That is almost... Uh, at the historic low. Um, so th the way that I look at this is, say I have an asset worth $10 million that I think is going to you know, increase in value at a modest rate of, of uh, 7%. Uh, in uh, roughly uh, 10 years, that $10 million asset will be worth uh, $20 million. If I sold that asset to my 
um, to my uh, a trust for the benefit of my kids for $10 million, uh, maybe even for less because I sell a minority interest, but let's keep it easy. I sell it to them for $10 million. Um, and uh, over the course of that 10-year uh, time frame, uh, they would have to pay me roughly 1%. Uh, meanwhile, the asset is growing at roughly 7%. I've created an interest rate arbitrage. The difference between what they pay me in interest and the growth of the asset escapes federal estate taxes. Uh, and we see this as an added um, possibility for wealth transfer planning uh, for families that uh, want to do more than just uh, the 12, roughly $12 million of, of gifting that can be done. Uh, for families that have large uh, businesses or ownership interest in those businesses uh, that really want to uh, shift the upside appreciation in a significant manner to trust or uh, to children uh, in the second generation. This is a way that we can uh, leverage uh, that transfer uh, strategy. And we're at very near uh, the historic low interest rate uh, for these types of loans. Uh, the, the, you know, we talk about selling assets, um, and we also talk about lending money uh, to uh, the second and third generation or trust for their benefit uh, as a way to further leverage wealth transfer planning uh, for uh, family offices uh, and family uh, business owners. So um, it is the third piece that has uh, come to fruition here uh, over the course of the last uh, several months. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is um, the lowest that we've seen this interfamily uh, lending rate, as I mentioned, September of 2012, 84 basis points. It had been uh, popped up to uh, above 90 uh, basis points uh, the next month, uh, and it continued to rise uh, over the course, rise up and down over the course of the next uh, seven years. Uh, as recently as 16 months ago, this rate was at 3.07%. Uh, 3. Uh, so in the matter of, of um, 16 months, it's dropped to that near historic low um, um, rate, and it just gives us another tool in our toolbox uh, to help families preserve, protect, and pass the wealth that they've created. And uh, this slide up here shows you know, those two um, typical uh, tools that we use uh, around the, uh, the interfamily lending rate, either a sale transaction uh, or potentially a loan transaction where uh, senior generation really transfers the opportunity to uh, either an access trust or to their second and third generation family members. And, and how do they do that? By lending them money that they then take and, and make that investment. Uh, Jason, you've talked about the income tax implications. What about uh, cap gains, uh, the implications for, for in, in this situation? In the sale? So again, yep. uh, if we sell, so slide seven here on the left-hand side, if we sell uh, an asset to the access trust, um, because of the way we structure the asset trust, you don't recognize any capital gains consequences at the time of sale. It's as if, for income tax purposes, 
purposes, it's as if it didn't happen. Um, however, let's say access trust, you sell an asset uh, to the access trust for $10 million. Uh, seven years later, the access trust sells it for $100 million. Um, there's going to be capital gain. Uh, and that capital gain, uh, guess who has to pay that? The grantor. Now, those are the situations where we want to make sure we don't find ourselves in a, uh, in a really bad set of circumstances. Um, so when we create the access trust, we make sure that we, um, that we anticipate that that could happen so that we have choices um, as to where and how the capital gains are paid uh, at that future point when the, the business is sold in that example. Um, that's the key is having choices. Does the grantor have enough other assets that it makes sense for him to, to pay the, the capital gains tax? Let's say the capital gains tax is $20 million on a $100 million transaction. If the answer is yes, grantor pays it. If the grantor does not, then we need to, to make that payment out of the access trust. We want to make sure that we've built in um, we've built in options so that that can happen. So we're real cognizant of that as, we, as we're building these structures. On the right side, the loan transaction, uh, the interest payments, and the same on the left side, but the interest payments that are made uh, to uh, back to dad because of the structure, those are not subject to income taxes. Uh, so the access trust paying interest back to uh, grantor in this, uh, in this case, uh, those annual interest payments uh, are not going to be subject to income taxes. Uh, another um, note on that also is that we can uh, defer uh, those interest payments if we want to. We have a, a great deal of flexibility in, in creating the terms of the note. We can defer uh, the interest payments so long as we capitalize them uh, and add them to the outstanding balance amount. Great. Jason, uh, how about we open it up to some so, Q&A? I've got some. I, yeah, go ahead. You bet. Uh, I would love to answer couple, some questions. A couple quick questions that have come in through uh, the WebEx. This first one here is around uh, GRATS. Do you, I mean, in an environment like today, are, are you recommending uh -huh. grants or advocating them at all? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I historically have not been an enormous fan of, of grants, uh, and the reason being is that uh, when we work with large generational wealth, so and I define generational wealth uh, as wealth that cannot be consumed by any single generation. Um, you might say that's 25 million. You, some people might say it's 50. Some people might say it's 100 million. Um, graphs are interest rate arbitrage strategies, very similar to um, to a sale of an asset to an access trust, almost identical. Uh, there are some flexibilities that the sale has that the grant does not have, um, and on top of that, a grant uh, can't be structured as a multi-generational wealth transfer strategy. So what does that mean? It means um, that the uh, asset base, the, the transfer of the wealth occurs from senior generation to second generation, but second generation now has the asset base includable in their estate uh, when and if they pass. Um, versus 
these access trusts in the way that they are typically structured, uh, the, um, the values of the uh, assets inside the access trust um, do not get included in the first generation's um, uh, estates. They don't get included in the second generation's estates. They don't get included in the third generation, uh, their estates, fourth generation's estates, and so on. Uh, so they are typically what are called uh, dynasty or GST exempt type trusts. It's, it's very, very difficult to do that with a, uh, with a grab. But that being said, GRAT does have some unique benefits. It's got uh, uh, a um, set of regulations that bless how you can uh, structure them. Uh, a lot of people like that uh, certainty. Uh, and it's got a couple of mechanisms if we misvalued assets that uh, are very beneficial. Uh, at the end of the day, they're very similar strategies. Um, the, I call them interest rate arbitrage strategies, uh, and they have a little bit of different applicability um, uh, and benefit. Uh, I happen to like the multi-generational aspects of access trust and sales of assets to them. So, uh, Jason, uh, the next question is around sort of jurisdiction. Does it matter where, uh, what state you're in or how uh -huh. you structure these, uh, these particular access Trusts. Absolutely. Uh, that's a fantastic question. Um, when we set these up, keep in mind they're routinely set up to be long-term multi-generational vehicles. And, and what happens is each generation uses the, the access trust, and when they pass, that includable in their statement drops down to the next generation, and so on and so on. Um, so real important aspects of state law come into play. State income taxation being one of them, state asset protection uh, being another, um, uh, how long the trust can last. Some trust it's roughly, um, roughly uh, 100, 110 years. Some trust it's 300. Some trust it's 1,000 years. You, you literally have states that say these types of trusts can last 1,000 years. Um, so we forum shop uh, for the right state uh, to choose uh, based upon all of those factors and considerations and based upon the state in which um, the uh, creator of a trust lives. Uh, and it routinely, um, we, we routinely find that there are uh, several states that make it um, very, very attractive for us to create these types of structures inside of their jurisdictional and their trust uh, mandates. And, and Delaware is one of them. Um, Nevada, South Dakota, uh, New Hampshire, Alaska uh, are, are uh, a number that we oftentimes uh, look to. Now, there's always a balancing act uh, when making those decisions, but forum shopping uh, to get the best venue uh, of combined trust rules, asset protection rules, uh, income tax rules, longevity of the trust um, is, real, um, is really uh, part of how we uh, navigate through that. Great. Uh, I had a quick question on, you know, timing. When's the best time uh, or is there an opportune uh -huh. time that families uh, should consider uh, doing a gift or a sale? 
Yeah, I, I think um, we've got a window um, here where the uh, gifts that whether or not you can get is very, very high. We've got low valuations. Uh, that's all obviously uh, important. Uh, and then whether or not you, it makes sense from a, a family perspective. So um, timing is always one of the, the key concerns. I will tell you that roughly eight out of 10 families that we work with lose some, I won't say all, but some benefit because they wait too long to transfer the asset. Uh, as an example, if uh, a family is 80 years of age and uh, they had an asset when they were 60 that was worth 100 million and now they're 80 and the assets were 300 million, if they would have effectuated some of these strategies, they could have, um, they could have moved a significant amount of that wealth off of their balance sheet. What we routinely see um, is that families come uh, after the wealth has matured, the, the asset has matured. Um, so I always say that successful wealth transfer planning is wrapped around uh, thoughtful business planning, thoughtful asset protection planning, and thoughtful uh, uh, family wealth planning. Uh, and to the extent you have the opportunity to do it before asset values mature, you're always going to be ahead of the game. And, and the thing that I don't possess is that magic ball. Frequently, uh, frequently families delay because of the fatigue associated with, um, with going through the planning process, uh, the technicalities, uh, and the technical nature of it. Uh, and, and it's just not that terribly exciting. It's exciting for an entrepreneur to expand his business, to acquire uh, a new piece, to uh, to negotiate the potential sale of it. Those are all really interesting and exciting things that, that drive the entrepreneurial uh, spirit. To sit down and talk about wealth transfer planning, um, it, it, it's kind of a, a kick in the gut uh, uh, for, for many folks. But uh, it should be uh, with most, uh, if not all, successful entrepreneurs, business owners, and family and family offices, it should be uh, a... Um, a regular reoccurring part of their strategic um, uh, concepts. There, it, it, um, it is oftentimes brought into play after the asset value has ripened. Uh, and the goal is to, to the oper most opportune time is to get there before the asset value uh, has ripened. Uh, Jason, another question here on uh, self-canceling installment notes. Uh, can they be used, you know, as part of the lending plan or, uh -huh. or any part of this access trust structure? Uh, uh, a, a second type, or not, I won't say second, another type of planning strategy uh, in the interest rate environment that we're in. It's certainly one that should be explored. Uh, we routinely see those structures uh, sit sidecar uh, to uh, the structure uh, that we have here. Um, and this, and I will tell you, there is one psychological aspect to skins um, that oftentimes is a deterrent, uh, and that is um, your, if the creator passes 
sooner versus later, those are more successful. Uh, versus this type of structure, uh, the gifting strategy, uh, sales to uh, access trust, they don't, um, they routinely don't fail or succeed based upon the longevity of the, uh, the creator or the seller. Uh, so there's a little bit of a psychological difference there, but certainly um, uh, the, the self-canceling installment note is uh, another tool and technique that is uh, very viable uh, where we sit today. And Jason, I think last question before we wrap up is how, do, how long does it take to put, uh, you know, an access trust into place uh, to get it started to, to the time that they get it implemented? So um, I will tell you that it can be done rather quickly. The, the formalities of putting it in place are, are pretty straightforward. Um, the creation of the, the trust, uh, and then the transfer of the assets in the trust. A little bit, uh, a little bit more paperwork if we're actually selling assets to the trust. Um, you know, if you had to ask me if if I had a client who was fully knowledgeable about what they wanted to do uh, and um, and wanted to implement it, could we have it done in in you know 10 to to 15, 20 days? Uh, absolutely. Uh, but what that is missing out on is the time it takes to get a client comfortable with and knowledgeable about um, uh, the transaction. Uh, and that routinely takes, um, you know, a little bit of time. Multiple meetings, every time we have a meeting with a client that's considering this, they, they, they um, hold on to a little bit more of how the structure works, a little bit more of the uh, of the um, nuances, um, I, I tell folks routinely expect 60 to 90 days start to finish uh, to, to have um, uh, something like this put in place. It oftentimes takes more because clients are, are very methodical uh, through their approaches. Uh, it can be done in under 30 days, routinely 60 to 90 days when we have clients that, that uh, are ready to, you know, emotionally and, and uh, psychologically ready to uh, explore, uh, and we do it in what I call due course. I do want to. There were. And I, I want to answer one other question that came up. Yeah, uh, I just saw uh, it. It'll take two seconds. Uh, somebody had sent in a question. Of, yeah, about um, the interest rates when you're doing sale transactions. Um, uh, the interest uh, rates. How is it set? Does it change each and every month? Um, and the answer is no. Um, the interest rate for a sale transaction or a loan transaction is fixed as of the date that you do it. So if I am going to do a loan to, uh, to an access trust in April, um, that rate, and I, it's a nine-year loan, up to nine years, uh, that rate's going to be uh, 99 basis points. Now, it's not going to adjust next month when the rates adjust. So it's the year that, or the month that you enter into the loan. However, what happens if uh, that rate goes from 99 basis points to a historic low, 80 basis points over the next three or four or five months? Can you refinance it? And the answer is yes, but you need to be cautious. Uh, you need to uh, be very thoughtful about uh, the refinance. Uh, 
because the IRS doesn't like systematic um, changes uh, in these notes. Uh, so when uh, when we refinance notes, when the rates were uh, back in in 2018, when the rates were approaching three percent, we didn't we didn't refinance every single month that the the rates went down uh, in 19. What we did was we kind of waited. We looked. Uh, the rates are released for the following month in April. Uh, I'm sorry, in uh, around the 20th of every month. So. Um, the 20th of March, we knew what the rate was going to be in April. We kind of watch it. We decide, you know what, what, what's our rate environment? Do we do it now? Or do we wait another month? Um, and we're very thoughtful about how we do it. I would not refinance every single month. Uh, that would uh, likely uh, create a scenario uh, where we would get uh, undue attention and could disrupt the structures that we've created. Um, so when we do refinance, we are very thoughtful about how we do it. We like to pay back principal. We like to change the, uh, the uh, length of the note if possible. Uh, we don't want to just uh, rubber stamp um, documentation uh, each and every month. Uh, we we want to make it look as if they were distinct and unique uh, transactions. Great. And I think with well, that, we're pushed up against our time limit. Yeah, no, well, thank you, Jason. Uh, and if, you, if anyone on the call would like to get in touch with Jason or have any questions, uh, do send us an email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. That's familyoffice, all one word, at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend that you check out our website where you can uh, find numerous resources that we have out there, sign up for our newsletter, and learn more about how we help family offices. Uh, that website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. That's bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. So thank you, Jason, uh, and, and thank all of you for joining us today. Everybody stay safe out there.